You're listening to the New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Well, I am so excited about today's show. We are talking about Llama 2, Facebook's large language model, which came out on, I believe it was the 18th. Is that my correct? Or was it earlier than that? It's caused a little bit of a dust up in, in the community. And I think it's mostly about the question about open source. So joining me today for this discussion are Stephen Vaughn Nichols, Editor-in-Chief of Open Source Watch. Hello, sir. Good to see you here. Thank you. Always glad to see you. Amanda Brock, CEO of Open UK. Thanks for having me along, Alex. And Erica Brescia, Managing Director, Redpoint Ventures. Hello. Great to be here. So there's been all like when when the news came out, suddenly I saw, I could almost hear this angry banging on the keyboard out there from people who were saying, "What the heck is going on here? How can you be calling this open source?" And people who know a lot about open source say, "No way, Facebook's Llama Two is not open source." And I will say that actually Facebook does use the term open source in their blog post, but I know, Amanda, you have a different perspective on it, so I look forward to hearing about that. But the people who I've heard from, including you, Erica, say it really doesn't fit the definition set by the open source community. And these are definitions that have defined open source you know, for decades. But it's interesting, too, for me, because there's some larger dynamics here. You know, there's more companies that are seeming to try to protect their business models with open source, and they've been using methods which provide some restrictions on what people can actually do with the technology, similar to, I think, what Meta's doing. I mean, I think of companies like Elastic and MongoDB. So really, if you think about it, you know, Facebook, and I think also Microsoft, are kind of like following the way that the wind is blowing in some respects. And now, it's awful, awful, awful convenient for them, too. I think OpenAI is an example of that. But the question is, what to do? I mean, is this going to stop? Is it not going to stop? And what does that mean for the evolution of open source with AI? Now, there's another critical matter here, too, is that we're talking about data models, not necessarily the code. And so there's a big question about what is actually defined as open source. So... That's kind of where I'm thinking, you know, things are going here and kind of my thoughts on this. And Amanda, so I'd like to turn it to you. You recently wrote in the news stack about this topic. What is your perspective? Yeah, so I, I think when you, you're saying this is an open source, that is one thing that everybody on the podcast is going to absolutely agree with you. It's definitely not open source. So Llama 2, no doubt whatsoever, it's not open source. And you'll have seen in the launch that Open UK, we have a broader remit than just open source software. So we felt able to work with Llama in the run up to the launch and to support it as a partner. What that meant is that we were supporting something a bit different. What was characterized by Meta as open innovation. So we're looking at a slightly different suite of components here from our traditional open source software, which is partly why we felt that way. One of them, as you've mentioned, Alex, is open data, huge, if not the main part of what we're seeing licensed as AI. But also we're looking at uh, the context here of the 
governments across the globe trying to legislate. And what we know for sure is that there's going to be restriction. So I don't think we are going to see going forward any LLMs or any significant AI being able to be licensed as open source because key to open source is the open source definition. Definitions five and six restrict any prohibition on use cases or people. So what that means is anybody can use open source for any purpose and we're just not going to see that with the LLMs. So we wanted to support and move forward and an opening up of innovation, but certainly not a mischaracterization of it as open source. Erica, when I first saw this news, one of the first tweets I saw was from you, and you were, you know, expressing, I think, some concern. I, how do you feel about things right now? Look, I think first and foremost, like this is behavior in general that we want to encourage in AI, right? I, I want to see more open AI development. I'm thrilled that Meta has taken this step. And I think it's important in all of these conversations that we're thoughtful about recognizing the contribution and I think the precedent that this sets, I think they're showing outstandingly good leadership. And I really want to be clear about that because that to me is the most important thing. But yeah, I was annoyed partly because I actually fell into the trap myself. I saw that it said open source. I thought Meta is sophisticated. Of course, if they say it's open source, it's probably open source. I didn't actually go to check the license myself because I was in a hurry, as many of us who tweet often are. I should have paused, but I didn't. And I said, oh, this is amazing that it's open source. And then Adam Jacob was like, actually, it's not open source. And I thought, look, you know, I think open source means something. I think there's a standard definition that at least most have agreed on for a long time. And I think we need new language either to talk about this type of development. You know, open innovation is great. Source available is great. Weights available in AI is great. We need either a new language or we need to evolve the open source definition in recognition of where the world is today. Like a lot of these licenses and even the premise of what it meant to be open source was created in a pre-cloud world and certainly in a pre current AI world. And I think, you know, if if we don't evolve how we think about open source and how we actually define open source licenses, it, that the meaning is actually going to continue to be watered down because what's going to happen is, you know, folks who I think are following more open development practices that many of us want to see encouraged are just going to stop even trying to get close to open source because they can't find a way to do that and still build a business. And I know there will be purists who argue that like, hey, that's not what open source is about. But I think a lot of the world has moved on. And honestly, because open source has kind of won and become so pervasive, like people are focused on other things now than they were 20 years ago when these definitions all came out. Erica, I, I totally agree with you that there's a need for a different language. And I know the OSI is looking at how they define open source AI or open innovation or whatever that becomes. I'm going to challenge what you said ever so slightly and I think it's super important we keep open source meaning what open source means because there is a whole ecosystem that relies on that and relies on those 10 definitions and those licenses to work to allow the flow of that ecosystem. And what I really think we need is to be clear on what the non-open source things are and what the names for them are. 
So I think there's a bit of work, uh, maybe an ontology, a tautology, whatever you're going to call it, that needs to be put in place around different kinds of openness. Yeah. And, and I, I agree that that works. I think I'm, I'm just a pragmatist when it comes to open source. And when I see, at least from my vantage point, what I see people caring about and how I see them engaging and thinking about open source, it, it just has changed in, you know, since at least I got involved back in 2005, right? Um, especially with the advent of cloud services and things like that. And I hear you on keeping, staying with the open source, like the current open source definition and the licenses that are approved. I do think we'll see fewer and fewer companies actually adopting them. And so the discussion becomes, you know, is that a good thing? Is it better to have a smaller number of things that are pure open source that, you know, adopt current open source licenses and the open source definition? Or is it better to expand the way we think about it, but have options that cater to more modern business needs and then have people standardizing on something. Because if we don't offer like a standard thing, then we end up with this proliferation of licenses that are all slightly different. It's far less efficient. And I think it it ends up being actually less powerful than having something that we all say, hey, we still agree that this is, you know the type, the, the way that we would love to see people participate in the ecosystem. And yes, there's been drift from what, from the original open source definition, but, you know, this is something that we think is more accessible. And so we'll keep more people kind of in bounds of open source versus slightly out of bounds. Steve, I want to, I want to give Stephen a chance to talk here because I think, you know, he comes from a long, a long background in, you know, in, in reporting and writing on this topic and, as you see this evolution happen, do you see a deterioration? Do you see the, the 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 big tech companies basically saying, you know, well, why does it matter? We can do what we want. Aye, there's the rub. That's the true trap is if we just start calling things open source when they're not really open source, then it, the definition erodes and we're in trouble. Uh, it's particularly annoying to the purists because the, the, the open source definition is right there, but to them, and, and we sh should respect that, there's all these other kinds of licensing, whether you want to call them open core or shared source, what have you. Uh, I think what is true, though, is that the open source definition was created long before Zero's cloud, and when AI were was list programs, which worked with a very limited data set and had really nothing to do with what we're, we're seeing today. And uh, we need a new definition of open for AI, particularly for the large language models. The code can still be under open source. Large language models, particularly the ones that have personal information in them, can never be truly open source because they contain data that the EU Privacy Act protects. They contain health information that HIPAA and the United States protects. Something needs to be done with that. So they are both open and at the same time, though, there is some protection. Now, the OSI and a number of other organizations are starting now to hammer out 
a new definition. I don't see that happening anytime quickly because it's a very complicated question. And we also need to deal with things such as, you know, the whole copyright thing, which open source way back at the beginning was working with. And now we have in large language models, huge amounts of information that are being taken from sites like Twitter and Reddit and so on and being fed into them. But who owns the copyright to that information? It's There's a lot of complex questions that need to be addressed and they'll need to be addressed in a unified license that if not everyone can agree with, at least people can point at and say, yes, that's a working definition. This is our, either we're going to adopt this working definition of openness for LLMs or this is how this is our approach. We disagree with this part of it and so on, but we need to have something concrete out there to work on. And that concrete is not the old style open source definition. So let's hack on this a little bit. You know, uh, Amanda, you, you have an inside look at this, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's different pieces here. So first of all, there's going to be the law, right? And the law overrides whatever you say in the license. And we've been talking to the Office of AI here in the UK. I know there's equivalent activities happening all over the planet. And what we look at is the data. So the data that's fed in and the data that comes out. And the data that's fed in, some countries allow scraping, some don't. That, you know, impacts your copyright. Some countries are going to require a list of what data is going in there, which is not a traditional list. It's not thousands and thousands of pages. You know, it's done with data cards and the like. And then there's going to be uh, the output. Who owns the output? And it looks like that's going to depend on a couple of things. It will depend on whether you've trained the LLM yourself or whether you're using an LLM that's pre-trained, and that will impact who owns the outputs. And it will either be the individual or the organization that's created the LLM, or it will be the questioner. So we're going to look at copyright in, copyright out. Then we look at data in, data out. So those are going to be things that are decided by the legislators. That's not going to be something we're choosing in a license. When we're looking at open data, we do get to choose licensing. And there's a number of licenses already in place. Uh, here in the UK, we've got the Open Knowledge Foundation, Open Data Institute, who've worked on that. Linux Foundation produced, I, I'm going to get the acronym the wrong way around, but I think it's CDSL last year or the year before. Time flies with COVID. So there are open data licenses that people are pretty happy with. And I think the bit that we are seeing governments really misunderstand, which is why I don't believe any components are going to be open source. Now, DeepMind, companies like that have been open sourcing for years, but I don't think anything significant going forward is going to be because they've made it very clear that they're going to have an acceptable use criteria. And those are always going to be in friction with open source licenses. I think the history of open source means that we can't shift away with the existing definition and open source has to stay as open source to avoid destroying a whole ecosystem of people relying on it. But I think we need some new, whether it's going to be defining for the cloud space as well, things like shared source, uh, public source, uh, you know, those kind of environments as well at the same time, or whether it's just the AI piece, but we're going to definitely see new definitions for AI. And I agree with Stephen. I think the OSI are going through a process. The consultation looks like it runs to the end of this year. We're not going to get a definition before the end of this year, or early next year for the open source AI component. And I suspect that could be too slow for the, the regulators. Erica, you've been working in open source for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I'm curious on 
you know, how this evolution affects your own views now and as an investor, you know, and how as an investor, this impacts the companies that you're looking at and who you're talking to. Yeah, you know, I was drawn into open source back in 2005. So I'm not sure <laughs> Amanda and Stephen may have a, a longer history here, but but it's still been a while, right? And I was drawn to open source because of the community and this idea of people around the world collaborating to build something amazing and valuable and sharing it with others. I think the ethos of open source and and what the community has been able to achieve is is just like awesome in the in the truest sense of the word. I think when I look at it from an investor perspective, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to hopefully find amazing founders, support them in building amazing companies and produce returns for our LPs, which are often pension funds for doctors and nurses and and nonprofits and things like that, right? And my success is measured on returns. And so whenever I'm looking at businesses, especially that are considering going the open source route, I have to be thoughtful about where can we produce, like, what's the model of the business that we're going to build and how, if at all, might open source licensing and, and building an open source community fit into that? And I think the answers are different for different types of products and different founders at different levels of the stack. But ultimately, what I will say is that the cloud has changed things. And we've seen this, you know, in Mongo and Redis and others having to change their licenses And in my view, kind of break the social contract that they had with the communities that they built early on, because they just aren't in a position to build as successful, as profitable of a business if they use a purely open source license, because it enables other people to take that technology who might have huge distribution advantages as cloud vendors do and create monster businesses out of it without having any obligation to contribute back to the the company or the community. And I, as a result, end up sometimes telling companies, look, I don't I don't know if open source is the right path. Maybe we go source available. Maybe we have a, a model where some part of what we're doing is open source, but the business is really like a complement to that, right? And there's benefits to the community and having this truly open source project, but it's not, you know, the core of how the business makes money. And so you know, part of my comment back to to Amanda, and I take your point about, you know, an ecosystem relying on open source. But at the same time, I think, you know, we've seen companies like shy away from open source because they can't build, you know, as successful of of a business given given the nature of cloud. Yeah, and totally agree. I would rather see a license that companies can actually embrace and use that is part of open source. So we have a standard definition that people attach onto. And like, I think there's an argument to say, hey, let's have it, you know, let's, let's call it, you know, source available or something else. But I think the more complicated it gets, like the more you lose people, because most people just don't, care that much about whether it's open source or source available. That's what it seems like. So to me, there's more power in one thing. 
Honestly, don't disagree. The problem is fundamentally that you cannot change the definition without unwinding everything that's been licensed already, all the millions of packages that were licensed in reliance on that. So it's like when you have a project that shifts license, you have to go back and get consent from everybody. The practicality of that definition shift is so huge in changing it that I just think it's prohibitive, which is why I totally agree with you. I spent years advising people not to open source if they don't understand the business model, right? If you can't make enough money out of it, don't do it. So having these other public source definitions or AI, open AI, open innovation, whatever it's going to be, I think they're necessary and they're important. But I, I think that pure open source piece, it's not about being a purist or believing in something. It's about a practicality that you can't change that definition because people have relied on it in the licensing. I don't understand that. Maybe if I could interject, uh, people, though, have changed licenses. I mean, the SSPL and everyone who's adopted one variation or the other, they all faced the cloud and they all blinked and they all changed their license often alienating their community when they did so. I think what might be better is some sort of upfront, we're an open core project, we're going to use the SPL. It's still going to be open. You can still look at the code. You can still manipulate the code, but we do have these restrictions. I would really appreciate more vendors, more companies that would just be honest with their communities. Because I know there's a lot of really unhappy people to this day who worked with you know, Redis and all these yeah. other companies because they felt like, and legitimately so, that they were shortchanged because if they didn't work for the company and they're not getting stock options out of it and so on. I totally agree. So I think we need to, I, I think it would be helpful if we were to have sort of a midpoint between open source and proprietary. A uni- something we could universally agree on, okay, this is not open source, uh, it's source available, and, you know, and I think for a lot of companies, particularly the ones where their product could be all too easily taken away from them if it was put on a cloud and uh, an AWS could simply just overwhelm any advantage they have simply because they could just deliver it cheaper I think that would be a legitimate approach, but I would appreciate it again if they were just do this before they've already built their projects. No, I just think the way they did it is the issue. So they've gone out there being open source. I, I think at this stage, not understanding the the restrictions around open source is inexcusable. So they knew what it was. And it's notable that the stage they got to when they made that change was that they were making money, just not enough money. And there's a different level of community with some of them than others, but most of them, the communities weren't massive and they had structured it in terms of taking those contributions to allow them to make the change. Most projects don't have that. So most projects can't make those simple license changes. Adam Jacobs talks about open core in a great way where he talks about loose and tight. And I, I think that's really, you know, these companies were set up generally as open core and they they need to sort of look at how that licensing is going to work over time. There is a need for something different in that space. I, I, I totally agree. The thing I was going to say to Stephen, I think I, I agree that there was a social contract that was broken for sure. The thing is, those companies started before cloud was what it is today. I think companies now are in a right. very different situation than those companies were. People didn't understand 
how the industry was going to evolve and what it was going to mean for their business at the time those companies chose the licenses. I mean, regardless of whether or not what they did was okay, I'm just saying I understand it in the face of a platform shift. I think now... Like we understand cloud, which was why I was advocating for something different, which I think is what Amanda is saying. It's just a question of whether or not we call it open source or something else. And to me on the open source thing, Amanda, when you said like, you know, you would, you would disrupt the ecosystem. I don't see how adding another license that's new, that people have a choice whether or not to adopt yeah. actually unwinds anything because you're, it's still a license switch. It's just, is it contained within the definition of open source or not? And established projects can just keep, you know, the GPL or, you know, MIT or whatever other license. They I, I think use. there is a, a reliance on the term, meaning what it's been defined as. And I, I think that that is how their licensing and their projects have all been approved. And that ecosystem knows that anything that has that open source, anybody who's adopted today knows that by taking something that's open source, there are no restrictions and they rely on that. And you've got huge, as you know, a sort of economic ecosystem. You've also got the licensing ecosystem. It's hugely problematic to shift it. I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but it is a much bigger exercise than most people realise from a legal perspective. I think the key is to find that shared source or, uh, you know, public source, whatever it's going to be called, and give that a meaning as well. But I do think that's slightly different. That's a choice thing, right? And I don't agree with Yerika. You know, we were seeing at Canonical 2010, the whole cloud thing. It's 13 years since that started happening. I think by the time we were seeing Elastic shift and Elastic building its business, they should have been wise to that. They should have known what was coming down the line with the cloud companies. But I I would accept, you know, a different definition for a public source. I think the key focus right now has to be that AI piece. And even if we want it to be open source, it's not going to be. So the question that I think that comes up is like really that difference between data and code, right? You know, data is everywhere. I mean, we the, the data is so different than anything else in comparison because we're creating data right now. You know, this will be data that we that comes out of the show. The question for me is like not necessarily about the source. Well, I guess it is about the source, but it's about tracking the data itself, right? I mean, because that's kind of comes down to the essence of, of, of copyright in many respects. It's like, are you creating derivative works out of like, out of data that you don't own. And so the question you know, in many respects comes down to that. And I, I don't know how companies are going to get, or, get around it without building a proprietary model until there's some method for better f- tracking the data itself. I'm curious, Stephen, if you have any thoughts on that. It's complicated, and I do not pretend to understand how it will be addressed at this point. For my sins, I now know more about intellectual property law than I ever thought I would know. <laughs> I think many of us who, are, who take open source seriously have found that over the years. We didn't think we were going to know about intellectual property law, but unfortunately we have. And IP law does not really address this particular this interaction of code and data into what we now call artificial intelligence. There are bits and pieces, but they don't, they aren't lined up really at this point. Uh, and there are indeed, there's open data, but there's lots of disagreements about that, nor does a lot of the data that's being collected right now, it doesn't fall under any of these licenses. I foresee many lawsuits ahead and just absolutely, it cannot be avoided. 
I hope that the OSI and allies and their attorneys and can all hammer out something that we can all at least agree on as a working framework. I imagine that framework uh, will take a long time to actually get nailed down. What the regulators and the government are going to do in the meantime, I don't know. I do know that for the most part, they are not well enough informed to make good decisions. Um, it's, it's That's not their job. I mean, here we have free people. We know this stuff really well. We live with it. We make our livings in one extent or another from it. And it's not clear to us how this is all going to work out or what's the right path forward. So the idea of some regulator, uh, some EU representative from Estonia, well, actually Estonia, they might know, but say someone from oh, the Vatican <laughs> City, which I just made up because they're not in the EU, uh, um, could work this out. No, I, I think really we're going to have to lead here. Whether or not we're qualified is another question, but we're going to try. So I'm just going to finish this up with uh, Erica and Amanda. Like, what do you see, I mean, as the the leading indicators? And what would you recommend people who are listening to the show think about? The other aspect of this, too, I'm curious in your thoughts, is like it's incredibly difficult to build these large language models, right? You know, to build your own vector database is not is no simple thing. Where do you think, think where do you go from here? Like, where do you see is like, you know, the thought for people listening to this show. Depends on who, <laughs> what their goals are and who's listening. Let's say software, software engineers and developers who are, you know, working in, you know, in enterprise environments who are building, you know, technologies for innovative companies and such. I mean, from that perspective, it's just understand the limitations and the licenses of the software you're using. I mean, nothing has changed there. Uh, from that perspective, I think there's a difference between licensing and then data license, like source code licensing and data licensing. I think from a data licensing perspective, like if you're building a model or a, a product, like we built Copilot when I was a GitHub, you better have your lawyers involved and really understand what you're doing and have a point of view on the legality of the data that you're using to train your models. I think that's really important and understand that a lot of this is going to be figured out by the courts to Stephen's point. Like, I think there's a lot of work we can and should do to develop standards. It's the same thing that happened with open source. It helps us understand and, and develop a standard set of terms. So not everybody's making up something new every time, which just creates a lot of unnecessary overhead and confusion. So I think we should be working on that. And I think we should go in eyes wide open that a lot of this still needs to be solved. From a business perspective, like I don't think Llama 2's limitations are going to keep anybody from building a new company around it for now. I mean, everybody yeah. would hope to have the champagne problem that is 700 yeah. million MAUs. Yeah. So I, I just don't think practically speaking, it impacts developers. It, it should impact you know, folks that are working through foundations and doing great work like like Amanda does and telling the stories like Stephen does. You know, I think it's it's upon folks in these positions to help drive the conversation forward. But from an everyday developer perspective, it's just understand licensing and, and copyright and the implications for what you're building. I, I don't think there's more to it than that. What's the trail you're following, Amanda, as uh, as you, you know, move into the 
month of August 2023? You know, I, I think it's interesting because when we're talking about regulators, you know, Stephen, you're right, we'll end up with litigation, but we also will see the regulators regulate. And the, the problem is there's a difference between understanding and perception. They have a lot of perception and less understanding right now, I would say, but it's not going to stop them. And we're seeing the, the European Commission's already got its AI Act. Uh, there's loads of commentary saying that that's at a date before it's even published. And that approach has been really, really prescriptive and detailed. And that's never going to work. So what we need is for the, the regulators to learn from history and to create something that's kind of agile that looks at the use cases, that doesn't try and regulate the innovation and the technology so much as the use cases in which it's going to be used. And I think if we have any regulator who makes good regulation, good legislation in that way, that's really going to help and drive things forward. But if we don't have that and they perceive this need for control, you know, this is all about transparency, right? Opening it up creates transparency, which should build trust. And that trust should allow control and there's a sort of view that they're opening it up as the Wild West, particularly from the Commission. And we really need to try and dispel that view. So I'm going to be following very closely uh, things like Marguerite Vestager's tweets. You know, she was tweeting on the 19th of June when she met Mark uh, Zuckerberg, hashtag open source, talking about how they were starting to build the acceptable use around LLMs. I'm going to be following people who are talking about tiny language models as well, which are much more eco-friendly and look like the future to me. And I suspect here in the UK, we will see something this autumn where the prime minister is really pushing for a summit that manages risk globally. If he's successful in that, that's going to be a big deal. If he can get the US and others to engage fully, that, that will make a shift. Sadly, I don't think what we have as opinions is going to have a massive impact. And what we think licensing should be is going to have a massive impact unless we are really, really collaborative about this and go forward and come out with very clear definitions with everybody sort of agreeing to those and moving forward as one. I think it's going to be very difficult to persuade the regulators otherwise. Well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, personally, I'd love to hear more from organizations who I respect greatly and their viewpoints. For instance, the Linux Foundation, as an example, and Erica's very close to the Linux Foundation. So I look forward to hearing from perspectives of the of the real leaders in that community. But the leaders right here uh, in this discussion are great. I think Stephen and perspectives, um, you know, coming from a long history of like following this world and Amanda, I mean, the, the leadership you've taken with Open UK has been fantastic to see. So uh, thank you all for your leadership and for your perspectives here. I think it does help with the conversation and helps uh, us think about it uh, from different perspectives. So thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community, and we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for the new stack, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us, and see you soon.